Hello, everyone. Welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat, a podcast recorded on Darking John Land by me, Liam Miller, he, him, his, a minister in the Uniting Church in Australia. I am very excited uh, today. We're, we're diving into a topic we've done a few times before, but always excited to return to it. We're talking abolition today, and I have Robin Oxley joining us today. Robin, welcome along. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's so good to have you. So for those who don't know, Robin is a, a thorough Horrible woman and has family connections to Yorta Yorta. Robin is an activist and lecturer at Western Sydney University in criminology. Her field is in the space of criminal justice system and Aboriginal rights to self-determination. Her work primarily focuses on human rights, social justice, systemic racism, prison abolition, defunding police and improving outcomes of Aboriginal people in relation to the Australian legal system. So that's a bit of the, the broad overview that we're setting up but I guess uh Maybe just like let's get to know you a bit more. Just uh, you know where where you're re- where you're recording from today, because I mean you're obviously teaching somewhere near Western Sydney University. Though these days, I guess you don't necessarily have to be necessarily near a university to be uh, teaching there. Yeah, definitely. So um, so uh, so like I said, my name is is Robin Oxley. I'm a Thurwell and Yorta Yorta woman. Um, I'd like to pay my respects to elders past, present, and also uh, the lands on which I'm speaking on, which is the Wurundjeri um, part of part of the Kulin Nations here in Melbourne in Nam. Um, I'd like to pay my respects to their elders past and present um, and know that I'm walking on their land very softly and um, would like to recognise as well today that, you know, what we'll be talking about will be sensitive in nature. Um, I'm, I'm sure some of it will be. So, um, yeah, just want to acknowledge that as well. Yes, thank you for that. So as we, as we go in toward abolition, I guess one of the questions I have is, uh, you know, how did you come to this position, this idea? Because so the reason I kind of reached out to you was I read a great piece that you wrote um, for Indigenous X, which um, we'll link below, um, about how, you know, prison and police uh, abolition are not radical ideas. And it's a brilliant primer for anyone looking to kind of get to know this topic, or if you just want to, you know, if you don't want to get dragged into a, uh, a Facebook argument, you can just send a link which lays out a bunch of the really good, um, you know, first steps in this kind of a conversation. So that's how I kind of, I kind of thought to reach out to you to um, get you on the pod. But I'm interested, how did your journey to with abolition, was it something you just kind of always were? Did you get convinced toward it at some point? What's, um, yeah, your journey there a little bit? So um, I guess my background with um, criminal justice in general is a lot different to what a non-Indigenous person's uh, experience would be. Um, And I think through that journey of youth and, you know, um, growing up and into my early 20s, um, you know, there's there's a perception that you get of police and it's it's an emotional thing. So uh, my parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, you know, there's a there's a history of colonisation and the impact that that's had, um, intergenerational trauma and so forth, um, kind of really sticks with how you interact with police and how you communicate with them or not communicate. Um, in some instances, uh, I remember my very first interaction um, with police was... Gosh, I was around 
maybe eight or nine and um, a bunch of us were playing with water balloons like it was a hot summer's day and, we, you know, we had to fill up our water balloons and we were running around um, trying to get each other with these water balloons and a police car drove by and um, just saw a bunch of Aboriginal kids running so they stopped their car and got out and chased us. Um, we didn't know what was going on. We had no idea uh, why they'd be chasing us and I think from that moment I really looked at... Um, differently on how, you know, Australia's legal system um, treats Aboriginal people and the policies and legislation that is enacted through Australian governments and successive governments and so forth. Um, so when I got into my mid-20s, I was really interested in law and I thought I would just, you know, I'd never finished year 12, so I thought I'd just, you know, go to uni, be a lawyer, anyone can do that. Um, but I, I did this bridging course or pathways into to university and, um Criminology was one of my first units and uh, I was taught by um, the Dean of Arts at Monash University, Sharon Pickering, who was um, absolutely phenomenal and um, a big influencer in my decision to stay in criminology. And as I learned more about criminology and, and um, the study of crime and so forth, um, the words prison abolition started to, to surface through um, Dr Bree Carlton, who was one of the... Um, lecturers at Monash and I had never heard of it before because there's just this over-reliance on prisons and this over-reliance on policing that, you know, we, we as society think that that's necessary and think that that's the only way, um, you know, to address crime or to address, you know, crime is even even a social construct, like it's an antisocial behaviour. Um, so I, I looked into it more and I read up about it more and um, really admired what Angela Davis um, says about uh, prison abolition and, you know, it's not just the building that needs dismantling, it's the structures within those buildings. And, um, and I think my interactions with the criminal justice system as a young child and a teenager um, really shaped how I would go forward um, and um, I guess adopt that prison abolition um, standpoint, but more so about violence as well within those prison systems and, and there's loads of things that happen within the four walls uh, that no one liked to talk about. Um, you know, there's there's lots of violence that occurs within those within the prisons. Um, you know, there's language that's used around that. So th there's a whole. It's it's like I said, it's not just the the building that needs dismantling. It's so many different things within those structures and within the way we speak about people in prison. Without you know, within the way that we um, that people are sentenced to prison under what circumstances and and so forth. Um, so for me, there, there are other options um, to a prison and, you know, quite frankly, like it's, it's a business. It, it's, um, it's part of the colonial systems and, you know, everyone talks about the system being broken and so forth. It's not broken. It does exactly what it needs to do uh, in order to run, you know, adequately, which is lock up people who, as Debbie Kilroy says, deemed us deficits in society. Um, so rather than addressing certain behaviours through, um, you know, like a health response such as addiction or so forth, it's a punitive response. And so that, that's, that's I, I really like the idea of changing the narrative around that and, and ha you know, getting people in, in society to have a look at what it means to, you know, abolish prisons and mm -hmm. 
how we deal with those things as a health response or a social response rather than a punitive response. Yeah. Thank you so much for that, Robin. And I think, like, it is really important, to, you know, for folks to realise that the difference of experience and, you know, um, attitudes towards police and prisoning, depending on if you're Indigenous or if you're a second person, particularly if you're a white guy like myself, it's like, and people have pointed this out, that, you know, for a lot of middle class to upper class white folks, we basically live in a world of police and prison abolition already, right? Like, you know, you have so little engagement with either. Um, and, and, you know, like I, I can think of, you know, plenty of times where I've done much more, you know, dodgy things than, than water balloon fights with, with groups of friends in public and like either no repercussions or just the, this feeling of, look, even if something happens or we do get, you know, some attention from the police, it would be very quite easily handled and not become this, this big thing. You know? So that like, you know, trying to, you know, locate and orient that shift and the way, as I say, this goes all the way back to the very early, the whole process of, of targeting, of, of stopping of who, you know, suspicion and it leads to this much, leads into this whole system. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's mightily important. Um, I think also then you know you're talking about the because I guess a lot of people will think about you know we do need prisons right you know the, these are things that we just need because we're we're, they, we're in the water of it. Um, but I guess people have also pointed out in the, in the kind of abolitionist discourse that prisons and policing don't necessarily do the things you think they're doing. Right. If you if you were to list off, ask someone, average punter, like what are the reasons we have prisons, and they listed their x amount of things, people want, they actually don't do that. I'm interested in your perspective, you know, coming from criminology on, on that, that that this divide, I guess, between what people think is being accomplished and whether it actually is. Yeah, I th- and I think that's a really important point to make. Um, Particularly in Victoria, we've we've got the, you know, 1991 Sentencing Act and Mm -hmm. under that Sentencing Act um, there's five, um, you know, five reasons to imprison someone Um, and it would be, you know, for punishment, um, for protection, so protect the community, um, to denounce the crime, to deter the crime and to um, rehabilitate the person who has um, offended. Um, and I really find them contradictory, um, these sentencing aims, because rehabilitation is one of the prime reasons why prisons exist. Um, but it's a farce. It doesn't happen at all. Um, in fact, the Andrews government a few years ago, um, I think it was 2018, injected a whole bunch of money into the prison system um, and the criminal justice system and 2.3% of it, I think it was something over $1.3 billion or don't quote me on that, but um, something very similar. Um, And 2.3% of that went on rehabilitation. Now, if you're serious about rehabilitation being a sentencing aim, then much more money needs to go into that um, particular outcome. You want want people to be rehabilitated. Um, but it kind of make it begs the question whether, you know, are we serious about rehabilitation? Are we serious about these existing aims? Do they need to be, um, you know, re-established? Do we need to kind of unpack them and and look at, um, you know, what it is we want from people who are in the system? But what is it that the system's doing to those people? That's the other question that you know we really need to be unpacking. And we really need to be looking at that when we um, when we're exploring you know, the sentencing options and, um, you know, if someone's 
imprisoned or arrested for homelessness, then why can't we address homelessness as a social mm. issue, not mm. a punitive measure? Um, you know, what is it about that? Or, yeah, if someone, you know, is addicted to drugs, like why is it always the go-to is punitive response? Why the, the go-to is always police? Someone has stolen something from your backyard, you ring police, right? It, it's, well, why, what is it about that particular item or that particular area or that particular time, um, you know, time of year, time of day, mm. whatever, that that's occurring. Like is it, you know, is it youth that need more um, services to support them? Is it, you know, homelessness, they need more services? Like what is it about it? Rather than just saying, oh, something's stolen um, straight to police, how mm. do we kind of, I don't know, unpack it a bit more and go, what is it about society that's making this happen? Um, so I really kind of struggle with those sentencing aims, particularly in Victoria, um, but particularly rehabilitation in general across mm. Australia, not just not just in Victoria. So, Yeah, I think that's so important too because I think, you know, there we have this idea now that apparently someone, the best way to rehabilitate someone is to isolate them from everyone who would be supporting them, who would be loving them, who would be reminding them of the person they could be, right? Like, and the, even the fact that, you know, we think of the geo geography of prisons is that they're never in, in a populated area. They're, they're so far away, mm -hmm. which could often make even visiting, you know, prohibitive for a lot of people. So, um, you know, and, and I think like, and one of the reasons I think it's so important for, for Christians to be engaging with abolition, I mean, obviously everyone should be, but, but part of, you know, from my own background is, you know, Christians being a part of the structuring of prisons, partly as a reform to somewhat um, moderate, you know, to consistent, make a consistent out of punishment. But it's also got such a, a particularly maybe Western Christian logic of the way to rehabilitate and reform is to sit in a room by yourself to think of what you have done and 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 allow the spirit to stir you into um, proper action, which is just, you know, maybe that works for the, a handful of monks in one particular time and place, but not for the broad um, populace and not for people from a very different uh, cultural background. And and I think it's just, you're right, that, that, that purported idea of rehabilitation, if we think that's what we want to do, I think there's just no, if that's really what you want out of what, you know, to help society, there's no real way to square that prisons as they are or prisons at all do that. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I, I definitely um, resonate with the whole, you know, the time and date and who who would benefit from, you know, sitting in a room reflecting on, you know, how, how you behaved or um, what kind of, you know, um, actions you, you engaged in and, and so um, yeah I mean you know prisons are a West, western system they're a western legal system they're part of it um, they were never part of you know aboriginal culture for 60 plus thousand years we never had um, and I'm not saying that there were no problems of course you know of course there'd be problems but the way to fix it is not to sit in a room isolated away from um you know, the very people that are there to support you and um, and to help you through it and help you understand, um, you know, there are other ways, there are other, um, you know, uh, support services to reach out to. Um, so, yeah, I really find that uh, an interesting concept there that you've, you've put hmm. put through about, um, you know, time and place and maybe, maybe in a 
Western sense, this was um, perfect 400 years ago, but, you know, we've progressed as a society, <laughs> one would hope. Um, yeah. So, you know, yeah, but the prison system seemed to be left behind there. Yeah, 100%. And I think you, you know, you're right, you, you pointed out, like, you know, it's not saying, again, because this is a charge often can be levelled against abolitionists, is that there's a kind of a utopian um, belief in the, in the, you know, goodness of all people and that people left to their own devices. You know, but, like, abolitionists often, from, from my experience, are, 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 have a greater desire, a greater emphasis on accountability than, than people who are just happy with a status quo prison system. Like, you know, there's, like, you know, a lot of the alternatives that are offered are, are, you know, rich in this is how we, you know, accountability is key. People actually, you know, seeing and, and connecting um, with what they have done and why it was antisocial, um, connecting with why it has done harm and, and then working through that, um, you know, is, is so essential. So can you talk to us a bit about how, you know, abolition does not mean anti-accountability. Um, in, or, or, or whatever kind of phrase we're trying to, trying yeah. To um, I think I think I'm I'm huge on accountability. I think um, you know I think that's one of the main, um, I guess, things that are lacking within our Australian government is accountability mm. and responsibility. So, um, you know, to be able to dismantle prisons and the systems that um, oppress, you know, the the minorities in. Uh, in society, yeah, it's not about, um, you know, someone breaking a law or breaking a rule and getting away with it. Um, that's simply not what it's about. It's about why that law was broken, why that rule was broken um, and how do we address that uh, in a holistic way rather than just continuing to throw people, um, you know, with, at, in the system, um, particularly when we move from, you know, when we move from youth into adult, it's just a recycled um, you know, it's a recycled system of these youth that are just constantly in, in youth justice and then, you know, eventually they're just becoming the adult system and it's it's almost normal and it's almost like, you know, we accept that um, as a society. But, um, you know, once you're part of the system, it's very hard to break out of. So, you know, when we're looking at accountability and who's responsible, <laughs> um, you know, my my go-to is the system. Like the system is responsible and the system needs to take accountability for the laws that they're making, um, the way that policing is done, the policing methods, policing practices, uh, racial profiling and the racist legislation that we have in this country um, aimed towards, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And I'm talking about, um, you know, Victoria uh, 2000 and... 19, I think it was, um, you know, we're supposed to abolish the public drunken, um, public drunkenness laws or summary offence um, in this state and we're still yet to do that. Mm. Um, now, that's a, that's a law that impacts greatly on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and I'm sure, um, you know, as you mentioned, being a white man, if you're out um, drinking on a Friday or Saturday night, you would expect to come home safely, um, as should everyone. Mm. However, it's not the case with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and even during the day, as we saw with Aunty Tenny Day, um, you know, during the day she... she, she unfortunately didn't make it home um so you know there's these the accountability works both ways it's got to work within the system and it's got to also work on individual and community mm. yes I, that's a great point i think thank you for that um and i think you know that's something that like you know the um, 
and thinking of, you know, as again, talking about the, you know, who gets stopped and who gets arrested for, for, for what and various crimes. And that was obviously a, a thing that came with the, the landmark um, Royal Commission into deaths in custody was, you know, it's, it's the whole thing. It's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are more likely to be stopped, more likely to be searched, more likely to be arrested, if arrested, charged, if charged, sentenced, um, if sentenced for longer. You know, it, it's, it's the whole thing. And then as we've seen with, with that report, then once, and as you mentioned earlier, once inside those places, you know, the possibility for, for violence is so much higher. The risk of violence and death is so much higher for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And, and so you've just got this whole thing that stretches the whole way. And as you say, once in it, it, it is so hard to break out because it impacts just just everything um, from people's kind of implicit biases towards you know who they can trust um, toward you know you know the actual ability to access certain services or kinds of employment or types of housing all those kind of things um, and as you say that the system has to be accountable for the violence it is it, it is it is bringing and and the and the destruction it is bringing um, on on communities. Yeah, definitely. I would, I'd love to add to that as well. Mm. Um, I spoke about the sentencing games and one of them is, is punishment and punishment is prison. Um, but when you're in prison, you continue to be punished and in ways mm. which people don't even um, recognise or would even realise. And um, it's interesting also to note that, you know, some people are in prison for years at a time, have never opened a door in that time, and then they're released into society and expected to... Um, you know, assimilate back to what they knew before, but all of that's gone because of what's what they've experienced within those four wars. Um, so it's you know how do, like that's part of you know that should be part of rehabilitation, but it's not. Mm. Um, so many things that are missing, uh, and that we expect so much of people when they when they leave prison. Um, you know those expectations, and you know when they don't adhere to that, how they feel about that, like. You know, it's easy for, for society to stand back and judge and, um, you know, but you, you have no idea what huh. what people are putting up with inside um, prisons and especially because they're privatised, you know, we talk mm. about accountability and responsibility. Um, anything happens, who's, who's accountable, who's responsible because it's not the government, they don't run these prisons, but then the prisons are there because of the government. Like it's just such a, a double-edged sword that... Um, you know, to and fro, it's like a tennis match, just, you know, all this mm. and stuff just going to and from and um, and no one wants to own up to it. But mm. I'm happy to continue these, you know, policies and uh, rules and regulations when it comes to putting people in prison and the continued mm. punishment. Mm. I think that's, that's you know, that, that point about, you know, just what a huge adjustment it is if you've gone from, like, yeah, not opening doors, not having to, you know, order your own life and then, you know, even more extreme, you think of uh, the Guardian ran a piece just recently, which was looking at a particular story of one um, Indigenous youth in detention and talking about the, you know, the 23 hours a day in solitary confinement for days on end, like absolute, in, in, you know, awful, inhumane, disgusting treatment. Um, but if, you, you know, we've often, you know, a lot of people have, you know, joked or talked about COVID and what lockdown has done to our psyches and how we're not ready to go back to putting on jeans after being in in sweatpants for for, for months and on end, or or what it's done to us to be inside. That's inside, you know, our homes, but we still have a great deal of autonomy and Netflix and um, you know everything like that. But but even we, you know, through through this season, through this year, have you know felt that to some small extent. And then so you say extrapolate that out, and then be like, okay, now just go back and 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 function, please, with the eye of 
suspicion and we're waiting for you to mess up hovering over that shoulder. Yeah, I I get really annoyed when people um, compare COVID lockdowns and curfews and so forth to being in prison. Obviously, Mm. they've never been in prison, so otherwise they wouldn't have made that comment to start with. Um, But you're not strip searched, for starters, when you're in your own home. You get to have access to internet, to the outside Mm. world, even though it's via video. You're not told when you sleep, when you wake up, when you eat, what you eat. Um, You know, there's things that there's liberties that you have... um, that, you know, we all had during COVID lockdown um, and we all endured it, you know, um, but it's completely different to prison. It's, it's, there's no comparison. There is absolutely zero comparison. So when, you know, yeah, it really frustrates me when people um, compare COVID lockdown to, to a mm, prison. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's, yeah. So, um, yeah, thank you for that. It's so important. I think another thing that, so I was reading a, a, a book review you wrote um, for the International Journal of Crime, Justice and Social Democracy uh, mm-hmm. on Blag and Anthony's decolonizing criminology. Um, and, and one of the things we were talking about there was, you know, they, they, there was a kind of a comment within the book about those who go into prison for kind of a, a, a you know, relief from, be it homelessness or, or, or family violence or, or, or different things like this. Um, and and you, you, you rightly criticise the way that is, that is referenced in the book. Um, and I think that's a good way into thinking about two kind of things here. One, that talk that you were talking before, that, you know, how much is lacking in terms of the preemptiveness, um, in terms of actually addressing the issues that are leading people um, to, toward incarceration or... To, um, and you know the, the and also then the fact that I think this is again I think that surprises a lot of people is why so many people are actually in prison. Like you know how many people are in prison um, for um, unpaid parking fines or unpaid fines of, of various types, and they just can't make bond, which is you know deeply again a classist um, kind of approach to how we think of who can be in and out of prison um, or for for various other reasons. So. I guess you know that that's something I'd just be interested to talk about both in terms of you know what leads a lot of people to prison because I think then you think well actually a lot of that the preemptiveness is is quite straightforward in some sense the the the, the social and communal steps we can take are straightforward. Yeah, I think um, that was a really interesting concept. I think that was that you know. Um, that shouldn't shouldn't actually well it actually should be in the book but it needed to be unpacked more. Um, so the the idea that Aboriginal women prefer to be in jail than uh, in their family homes is, is you know, what m- might be real for some people. Um, but without giving it any substance, it's absurd. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason why they're unsafe in their own home is because there's family violence, um, because there's, you know, it's unsafe for them to be there. Um, it's unsafe for them to be in, in prison. Um, however, out of the two places that they can go, they're both unsafe, which one's, you know, less um, less unsafe and, you know, unfortunately prison wins in that respect. So um, why is it that they only have a family home that's unsafe or a prison that's unsafe? Why can't there be another option for mm-hmm. women who are experiencing family violence to go? Um, why aren't we addressing the way that men... Um, you know, are brutal and are violent towards women. Why isn't that being addressed? Why is it always the woman that has to be remo- remove herself from her home mm. in order to be safe? And particularly 
being put into a system that, you know, they won't get out of. They will continue to just be part of the cycle. Um, and it's a lot of a lot of it is has a lot. It's got a lot to do with colonization and the impacts of colonization. And I say that simply um, with this. You know, there's these social constructs of Aboriginality that exist. Um, that you know, we're we're inherently criminal, or we're alcoholics, or um, you know, we sniff petrol, and you know, all of these things that these stereotypes that are constantly uh, thrown at us. Mm. Um, but even if even if you look at it and you say yes, there is petrol sniffing happening. Yes, there is alcoholism. Yes, there is drug use. Yes, there's violence. It's in every community. It's not just Aboriginal communities. However, when we look at Aboriginal communities. Um, the reason why these things happen is because of colonisation. So we've had child removal, we've had mm. forced assimilation, we've had dispossession from land. All of these things have never been addressed and the truth has never come out about it. No one um, in the Australian government is willing to um, provide compensation for these people who have been forcibly removed, dispossessed and so forth. Even generations down the track, it's still... Um, it's still trauma that exists after each generation, so in the intergenerational trauma. Um, so we have these, these issues and impacts of colonisation. Um, you know, alcohol was introduced to Australia. It wasn't, it wasn't here beforehand and was used um, to pay for, you know, as rations for, for work being done rather than money. Um, mm. But no one talks about that side of things. You know, women had their children removed from them. Um, communities were massacred. Um, we had the frontier wars. Like so many things happened in our history of 230 years um, that still continue to this day. Like it's not, it hasn't stopped. Um, and this is why I, I also had a bit of an issue with the decolonising. I mean, we, it's really difficult to decolonise a system um, that's entrenched with colonisation and, mm. and colonial um, settler um, ideologies of what law should be and, and so forth. So, um, yeah, I think when it when we unpack why these things occur and why why people drink or why you know what is it that they're trying to escape um, escape from or you know why do they not feel safe um, in their own homes? Like, there's a lot more to it than just going, oh, you know what. I can either pick being at home or I can pick being in prison. Yeah, I'll just, hmm. you know, go to prison because it's safer because it's just mm. simply not the case. No. Thank you for that. I think, you know, that's such an important to, to place this within that ongoing ongoing colonial violence, ongoing colonial project um, to, you know, of, of white supremacy and, you know, because I think, you know, we often see, you know, people who, you know, kind of come to abolition from maybe an American system, you know, might have, you know, read like a Michelle Alexander, the new Jim Crow, um, or, or read Angela Davis, who you've mentioned before, who, you know, are placing the the current prison industrial complex in the US as this is just an extension of Jim Crow, of slavery. It's it's just the newest form of white on black violence, on, on yes. structural and systemic racism. And I think sometimes... Like a lot of times when Australians, we look at the US and go, yeah, boy, the US, pretty bad, pretty bad. Good thing we don't have anything like that here. But, you know, as you're saying, these the prisons are very much still an extension of the same settler colonial project, the same colonial violence of removal from families, of, you know, the taking of land, of the um, 
of the, the you know restriction of flourishing of the taking of wages all these kind of things so you know you know which then we should push to you know there's a lot of folks out there who maybe are generally warm to the idea of we need to be doing work on the impacts ongoing of colonialism and that but have not taken that step to see that prisons and policing are hard or so central to that um yep. but if, so if you want to be a part of one this is part of that movement definitely and i um i think you know another part of um, colonization is the idea of um, you know forcibly removing and dispossessing Aboriginal people from their homelands and from their country um, mm. and then they they want to be connected and, st- and stay connected so they they go back on country but then you know they're arrested for trespassing um, you know that adds to that disproportionate number of Aboriginal people in in prisons um, you know in a country where sovereignty is never ceded how do you trespass on your own land mm-hmm. how do you get arrested for that um so you know it's all these things that that have happened um you know that's just this is a small snippet but people would be like yeah actually that does sound crazy how can you be arrested for trespassing on your own on your own country like yeah so um yeah, i find that i just yeah, I don't know. There's there's lots that we need to unpack and unpick and talk about and there's loads of truth-telling um, that mm. needs to happen. And you know what, no matter how uncomfortable the conversations are, um, it's not it's not comfortable for us either, but, you know, we're willing to share this knowledge and share the feelings and um, move forward together. Mm. Absolutely. And I think, like, that's where things can be, you know, fruitful as we look to move forward is, like, so obviously the system now absolutely is disproportionately focused on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Um, and on top of that also, loads of families in different communities have had their lives and their families and their communities torn apart by uh, prisons and policing. And as you say, prisons are not something, they're a new concept, particularly on these lands now known as Australia. They're, you know, So for those families who have felt that, um, and again, you know, that's, you know, um, impacts different communities, you know, particularly other marginalised groups more than others. But, you know, who are thinking like, oh, man, what if our son who, you know, when they were overdosed, woke up in a hospital with, you know, a handcuff around their wrist, what if they hadn't? Mm-hmm. What if they hadn't? And and maybe they wouldn't have gone and overdosed again, you know, and, and then died. Like what if, you know, and that's where the fruit can come of like, you know, actually learning from sitting and listening to, you know, um, Indigenous peoples and going like, do you know other ways? You know, are there other ways that we can learn and listen from so that we can all heal and all have, you know, try to work out ways that we can eliminate and or reduce antisocial behaviour in a way that does not tear us asunder and ruin lives and, and wreck violence wherever it goes? Yeah, I mean, in an ideal world, absolutely. Um, but I think... Like I said, there's this over-reliance on the criminal justice system here mm. in Australia. And, and I'm not just talking about, you know, the courts and corrections. It's policing as well. Like, they're, they're a huge part of the problem, like mm. massive part of the problem. Um, and some people will argue, oh, well, we'll just get Aboriginal people in the blue uniform. Um, that doesn't actually help. It just pits Aboriginal people up against each other mm. because whether you're trying to change the system from within or change it from the outside, um, you can't change a system, like there's no reform with the criminal justice system. There will be no reform with policing, though, but you cannot reform um, such a, a violent um, you know, system that continues to oppress. So, yeah, I, I really kind of struggle um, 
you know, I, I love that idea that, you know, if, if um, unfortunately if you had a family member that OD'd and they woke up without cuffs on and actually we looked at that as a, as a health response. Um, I love the fact that if you've got, um, I don't know, a kid that's kicked in the door, you'll ring someone to fix the door, not police. Like I like the idea that we change the way that we think about things and we change the way that we um, address um, that kind of behaviour and rather than relying on police all the time, I really, you know, really mm. hope that, you know, in the future we we have less um less it we you know we focus less on prisons and punishment and policing and and look more towards you know how we deal with it socially totally and then even we've seen one of the great shames of the last year was how readily accepted it was that police needed to be an essential part of covid management right like how like okay how are we going to manage covid and ensuring people behave in a way that's safe and etc cetera, et cetera. and we're like well, we're gonna, we'll turn to the police and it's like that seems fraud and unfortunately it was like you know except i think far too easily from people like you know across a, a pretty wide political spectrum um and and i think you know it's the same with you know people have talked about before with you know the reliance on police on like on mental health call outs and checks mm-hmm. you know who've done maybe a day um, of, of, of specified training on 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 how to deal with mental health, which you know, compared to, hey, maybe we could get someone whose whole profession it is to de-escalate and to work with someone in that situation and, and to bring everyone out, because uh, there are people who do that all the time and and do it well. Um, so yeah, I think you're, you're right. It's, it's it's thinking of who you know, what do we think is the best person to go to in this? It might not necessarily be who we've always been thinking is the necessary person to call. Yeah, and who we've been told, I guess, as society, you know, we're told that, you know, police are there to to help. Um, I'm not sure who they're there to help. I'm pretty sure it's the, you know, the, the colonial systems that they've come from. Um, but, yeah, I think, I, I mean, COVID was a perfect example. Rather than, um, you know, handing out fines, they could have handed out, you know, face masks. Mm. There's, there's one way of... Um, you know, preventing a, probably a whole heap of people who would be, you know, not not able to pay that fine, and then it yep. you know um, progresses and, and gets bigger, and um, before you know it, they're in prison for you know not having a face mask. Well, mm. hand one out to start with; you won't have the issue. Um, yes. But I mean, police brutality through COVID was just yeah was extreme in itself. I mean, particularly towards um, Aboriginal people, and I think in that article that you mentioned um, that I wrote, I, I did mention a few cases. Um, in that one of, you know, what, what happened with, um, you know, with police brutality and violence and why we then look towards defunding police because, um, you know, it seems to be okay to take money out of health services mm-hmm. or education or housing or employment. Um, yeah, that seems to not, you know, no one bats an eyelid when that happens. But as soon as anyone, you know, thinks about taking money out of criminal justice system, then, boy, it's like clutch the pearls can't let that happen um but yeah yeah, yeah. and if that money actually went into services that address these issues to start with Ab- absolutely and that because that's the thing people point out the money is there it can just be redistributed um and and needs to be done so obviously in conversation um, with those most most current most currently adversely impacted by the system but it could be absolutely could be done yeah um, as you say um 
I think that's that's very helpful. And I guess one of the, you know, you've kind of pointed out a few times, so you're down in Victoria um, and a lot of stuff under the Andrews government. Uh, you know, sometimes, you know, people might, you know, when you go into abolition talk, people, you know, kind of see it as like, oh, you're being partisan or things like that. It's like, no, no, because um, this is this is a topic that absolutely defies both major parties. <laughs> you know, like this is so they're not, not going to find you a home there. Um, it's It's, you know, which is, in some ways, perhaps means you can build a whole new broad tent of people who can get involved in this work, but at the same time also must feel very disheartening because you're like, we don't even, you know, there's no, you know, group close to the, the current power system that you could feel like you've got an ally in in this work. Yeah, I think, you know, I think we'll make our own power. I think we're, we really rely on um, grassroots um, campaigning, um, like, you know, such as Clean Out Prison, which was um, a campaign last year, um, to to try and get people out of prison who weren't there for violent offences um, during COVID because it was just, it was a breeding ground. It was just like waiting. It was a ticking time bomb waiting to just explode. Um, mm. So, you know, as we saw in, in America's prisons, it just absolutely wiped out you know, so many people. Um, yeah. So the, the threat that would happen in Australia was, you know, was was confronting for families who have um, people in prison. Um yeah. So yeah, you know, we we there's a lot that we rely we rely on Aboriginal community controlled organisations um, such as JIRA. Um, we've got Na, uh, Natsils, which is National Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Legal Service, um, run by um, Roxy Moore, who's a who's an amazing lawyer, Aboriginal lawyer. Um, we've got VALS, which is a Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. So there's loads of mm. um, you know Aboriginal community controlled organisations that you know we it's not I guess. I guess the power is different. Um, yes, there's government who makes these, you know, legislations and policies, but um, without our voice, you know, without without our actions and campaigning, then, you know, who, who knows what the future of prisons. Mm. Yes. Uh, thank you for, for shouting out those groups. I think that's that's really important. And I think, you know, and you've seen, I've seen other, you know, things set up, or just basically, which are just like simply like putting in for bail funds just to get people, you know, it's a, it's a really direct way. You can just get someone out tomorrow because the only reason they're there is because they don't have the money, which again, as we've talked about earlier, is just so absurd and disgusting. Um, Roman, thank you so much for today. This has been a, just a, a truly wonderful conversation. I hope everyone who's been listening um, along or watching along has, has has appreciated and learned from it and is going to check out some of those organisations you talked about and look at how they can get involved and, and support. Um, anything else you want to shout out or how can people connect with your work or you've got a course coming up that you want to tell people to, to enrol in? I don't know. What do you, what do you want um, to shout out right now? <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm teaching um, gender violence and crime this this semester in um, Western Sydney Uni, and I also teach First Nations and criminal justice in the in the second semester. Um, so, very interesting topics. We don't hold off on, um, you know, getting getting down and getting dirty in the uh-huh. in the impacts of colonisation. We'll talk about all those things. Um, but you can follow me on Twitter, which is Robin underscore Oxley. Um, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. That's great. Thank you so much for joining us today and uh, hopefully uh, we'll connect again down the line. Absolutely. Thanks, Liam.